Hi, Wool Academy Podcast listeners. This is the Wool Academy Podcast, episode 125. And I'm happy that you're joining me again today. My guest of today's show is Sophie Holt. She and her husband are growing wool in Australia on their sheep farm called Kunong Station. And Sophie is very, very passionate about animal welfare. And she was so kind to share her perspective and how she and her team are implementing animal welfare across their operation. And we did have a little bit of connectivity issues uh, during the call and had to turn off the video at some point. And there are a little bit of audio um, strange sounds, but I do hope you still enjoy um, this episode. I apologize, but sometimes if you talk to wool growers in very remote areas, the internet connection isn't always that stable. So thanks for understanding, and I do hope you get a lot out of this. Talk to you again at the end. Bye for now. Okay. So today I'm really happy to be talking to Sophie Holt from the Kunong station. Is that correct how I just said it, Sophie? That's correct. Hello, Elizabeth. Thank Hello. you for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful to be able to talk to you. Um, and I think the best way for us to start is if you tell us a little bit more about yourself and about the Kunon station and yeah, what you do there. <laughs> so I, I am a fourth generation farmer. Uh, I grew up on a, a cattle sheep property in southern South Australia uh, and then we moved to uh, central Australia to the Simpson Desert. Um, I remember uh, watching my father feed orphan kangaroos and wallabies in the 70s. He had his own small wildlife sanctuary and a permit to feed kangaroos and wallabies so I think I was always destined to be, a, you know, a conservationist. Um, I uh, I met Tom, um, Tom Holt, my husband, and uh, moved over here about um, 20 odd years ago to Kunong. Um, Tom's parents uh, purchased Kunong in 1972. Uh, from the Makaki family so and uh, it had been held by the Makaki family since it was for um, many 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 years not long after they purchased the Kunong Tom's father passed away and so it was managed by Tom's mum Julie Holt until Tom took it over so it's now we have uh, 71,000 acres and we run 32,000 Dooney Merino sheep. Um, we produce uh, just over uh, 500 bales of fleece a year of wool. Um, I think that's... And uh, does Kunong mean something in particular? Like, does it have... We don't name? know. We don't... We've, we have looked it up and try... And we... I'm... I love Trove, which is the National Library website, which has all of the old um, papers and records on it. And um, and no, we we can't find a record of what the name means. Or most names come from have an Aboriginal meaning, um, or you know, obviously come from a land feature. But no, um, we, we can't seem to find, uh, it's always been Kunong back when um, Makaki bought it from Wilson um, in the 18, early 1800s. Um, but we can't, we can't find uh, uh, the reason behind the name. So yeah. the creek that runs through it is called Kunong Creek. But yeah, it's a, a name we can't seem to find a meaning behind. <laughs> it just sounds nice. <laughs> and tell me a little bit about the, um, so you said you you sham with Dooney Marinos, but tell me a little bit about the landscape of where you are. Like, how do I need to imagine it? Do you have green pastures oh, or it, is it dry? <laughs> yes, yes and no. Mm -hmm. So it's a 17-inch rainfall. Um, 
and it's predominantly summer rain, which as you know, summer rain can happen or cannot happen so but it's all native grasslands and that's the interesting bit about Kunong is it's it's the first well there's many but it's the first of the stations the large pastoral properties at the start of what they call the hay plain so the history the environmentally significant hay plains and they are native grasslands and they are covered by the Native Grasslands Act which is legislation that says you can't spray, seed, super, plough, you can't touch the native grassland. So what is there is all you've got. So the way you manage it is the way that it, you know, continues. If you choose to overgraze, then you have to wear that, you, you know. So that's what makes it Kunong um, so wonderful is that we are, you know, 71,000 acres of native grasslands. Um, we, and we have Colombo Creek runs through it. So we are absolutely flat, that red sand with native grasslands, um, 17 inch rainfall, predominantly summer. So there's summer fobs and, um, you know, your succulents come up. So it's, very little trees other than the riparian zone along the creek that runs through the middle. So yeah, if you could, it's what you could probably call it marginal country, but some people would be offended by, by calling it marginal country, but there are some years it is very marginal um, and some years it's absolutely beautiful. The thing about native grasslands is if you look after them, they will look after you. So they will respond with five mils of rain, which would be nothing to most farmers, five mils of rain and they will flower, generate seeds, um, you know, and, and um, you know, put grass up. But you've got to always, always, always be looking, looking after that seed bank in the ground because that's all you've got, that seed bank. If you overgraze or you have too many false starts and you don't take the stock off, you lose that seed bank and it's gone because you can't, by legislation, you know, sow, plough, seed, super, anything. You can't touch it. So it's the most beautiful country, um, but it's also, it's, you've, got to, you've got to really work with it, you know, and make sure that you're protecting it. Mm, wow, that's fascinating. And I think we'll talk a little bit also later about it. But now I'm also fascinated about the Duny Merino. And actually, I don't really know much about this particular Merino breed. So please tell me a little bit more about it. They are a, they come from South Africa originally. Um, and, and they are a cross between the Merino and the Sams, I think. <laughs> Don't hold me on that. Um, but they are a cross between the merino and a meat sheep breed. So they are um, were intended to be a hardy animal um, that could, um, you know, have the carcass qualities and the wool qualities. So we were always a merino stud um, here um, from when Tom's parents came, the Kunong merino stud. Um, and Tom changed about 2001. Um, they bought the, um, the Doonies over to Australia. I think they bought the, the embryos over from South Africa and they started the Doonies. Um, and Tom uh, tried some embryos just to see how they'd go. And he was, um, he really liked what he saw. They were like hardy. They can you know, do well when it's dry. They can, um, they're easy doing, easy care. Um, and their wool, it had all the characteristics that Tom wanted. So he started crossing um, dunies over his original merino. And so the dunies that we have are the ones that have evolved from crossing the dunies over the merinos. So they're purebred, um, but the crossing started back in 2001. And now you have enough sheep 
uh, that you you kind of self-sustain the flock or yes. you need to yes. yeah yes yes so we have for a while so yes mm -hmm. um so yeah so we breed our own rams so but we're a, we're not a stud we're just a commercial a commercial flock yeah cool and they do they like the local regional grasses they do well on them yes they they graze there's something there's something pretty special about them in that they graze differently to the merinos um, and they haven't this is all anecdotal and obviously it comes from Dooney breeders but it's certainly interesting the way they graze um, they are um, not they tend to eat a lot more than the merinos in terms of different plants so um, then they are a lot more aggressive feeders, but they um, and they do a lot better. So they're a lot more robust, but that's obviously coming from a Dooney breeder um, and it's anecdotal. But yes, they <laughs> always say there's something there's something about them that they can do so well, um, you know, that they are the robust plain bodied sheep that do really well out in the tough conditions and the the good conditions so and the wool you know we are about 19.5 micron um you know with the the beautiful white wool long staple and the 99 comfort factor so they are um, definitely performing in the wool, they're performing in the fertility, um, and also they're, they're performing in the in the way that their doability in these conditions. Hmm. Okay, yeah, it's interesting. I think often, um, like if you're not a sheep uh, owner, you kind of just categorize merino sheep in one, but then there's a huge difference among different breeds within the merino. So interesting yes <laughs> and the way they i mean they they were sometimes they're referred to as dooney merinos um and um or just doonies um and so uh i think at this stage the way it's gone the wool's now considered merino wool um obviously it, when it first the doonies first started you know the first shearings with the doonies we had to differentiate that it was dooney wool and not merino wool and so that was back in the early 2000s but now i think that the spinners and the the manufacturers have seen that it performs you know as good as or the same as merino wool and so now it's just classified as merino wool mm -hmm. so it's oh. yes yeah it proved itself over time yes <laughs> yes and then a big uh, part that is important to what you do um is that you say you, you strongly believe in working to exceed expectations for animal welfare so and there i have more questions about that but tell me a little bit how did you uh, decide to write this sentence on your website why is animal welfare <laughs> so important <laughs> um i i the sentence is is probably a little bit open um uh, to be on the website and i must change it um, but it's still a good sentence because it's not designed to, to, it's not the end of the conversation, it's designed to start the conversation, which it obviously has with you. So it's not the end of the conversation, if that makes sense, because obviously expectations are going to, um, depend on personal you know, views, society's views. Um, everyone's got different expectations as everyone has different morals and ethics, you know, and, and different viewpoints about animal welfare. I think for us, um, animal like exceeding animal welfare expectations, considering our expectations, it's put simply, it is that they should have a good life and a good death. And that's obviously something that, you know, a lot of people don't like to talk about. Um, so we might as well just acknowledge the elephant in the room early on. And that is that life is, 
is finite, finite for all of us and the animals and humans, um, you know, will die eventually. So I think for us, it is acknowledging that they should have or that they will have, that we will do everything in our power to make sure that they have a good, good life and a good death. Obviously, once they leave the property, you are limited in, you know, once they, they hit the kill floor, you're limited in what you can do. Um, but there are things that we can do in terms of, you know, um, minimising time at larages, making sure they are put on a truck correctly, only using good transporters, not live exporting, um, that we personally do. Um, monitoring if we have any deaths, monitoring the conditions that they're trucked on. And, you know, preferably not having them in larages. So finding out when they are going to slaughter and, you know, so there are things that we can do in terms of most of our focus is with a good life is um, obviously managing the environment around them, um, managing the, the grasslands, but also managing the five freedoms, um, the hunger, the disease, the stress, the, you know, the welfare. Um, we work with our vet, not on a reactive basis, but a proactive basis. Um, so instead of saying there's a sheep sick, come out now, it's these are the conditions that we've got. You know, it's wet. What can we expect? This could happen. This could happen. Or um, this is what we're seeing. What can we do? How can we, what minerals or what? What could they do? So a lot, I'd say, like more of our work with the vet is proactive than reactive. We use a lot of pain relief. Um, we have a very big policy and procedures manual covering every aspect that, of our handling and the sheep's welfare. And then we, all of our staff have read that manual, but then we do an exam on Every year our staff sit an exam and they answer questions from that manual and we take it pretty seriously. So it's not something that, you know, we put up the signs and we say that we are high welfare. Like we, we actually make our staff sit an exam and if they don't want to sit an exam, then maybe they, you know, that we need to have a chat to them, you know. So we surround ourselves with people that are just as passionate as us that um, that animals are, are not fearful or in pain or hungry. So, and that's, I think, and that applies beyond the sheep. It applies to the native wildlife um, on the property as well. So it's all animals. So we don't just pick the ones that make money. It's all animals. So, and I think when I say that we exceed expectations is that we're, uh, it's, it's a little bit of an open sentence, but it's more that we exceed it in terms of we are really passionate about it. So it's not, it's beyond the economic benefits and it is recognising sentience, which our country doesn't legislate to recognise animal sentience. It's training our staff, it's, made, it's surrounding ourselves with staff that recognise animal sentience. It's having the five freedoms up on signs and, and, and like doing exams with the staff every year so they understand, you know, the five freedoms. So I think that's, you're never going to get to the perfect place, you know, with animal welfare. I mean, no one can agree on animal welfare. You know, we can't agree on, humans can't even agree on how to treat each other, let alone animals, but we can keep trying to, you know, to make sure that they have the best life and the best death, as that's all any of us can expect or mm -hmm. hope for. And you are really, um, yeah, how do you say it? putting I don't know how to say it putting it where your mouth is or you walk the talk because no, you also, walk the talk. Yeah. <laughs> because that's you, a that's a saying for people that don't that don't um don't deliver 
No, okay, sorry. Then, then it's <laughs> my German and English. No, that's, that's okay. And what I want to say is that you're very serious because you are also right now studying a master's in international animal ethics, welfare and law. And so do some yes. of your staff members as well. Um, yes. That made me really curious. Tell me how that works and what are you um, doing? <laughs> I, I love study, um, always have. Um, it was always, always, you know, um, ingrained in me from my father that you keep studying and you keep learning, that you would never know everything. And so I really love study. Um, and I think it's important. Um, and so I love learning. And and, um, and so I, um, I, yeah, I, started doing I'm well I've got another year left of the um the um masters in science international animal welfare um ethics and law um and I'm up through the University of Edinburgh um I applied because it's a course unlike no other you know I couldn't find another course that was um that that looked at animal welfare um, and it's run through the, um, the veterinary school at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, it was a, um, a bit of a shock at the start because I'd been out of study for a long time. Um, but the thing that I love so much about it is it made me question everything. Not question as in change my mind, but actually think, wow, what, like, what do I believe? Like, what are my beliefs? Not, um, not reverse my beliefs, but actually question, you know, well, is, is that what I believe or is that what I believe? Um, and there are people in the course from all backgrounds. So we have people from animal rights organisations. We have people from vets. We have behavioural trainers, uh, animal behavioural trainers. I'm the only farmer, um, but we have... Um, like all these different people that in a normal life I wouldn't get to talk away an animal rights person would talk to me or maybe they would but not in you know not on a daily basis and so I get to hear and like everyone is so intelligent and has so many ideas but we all come with our own set of beliefs and morals And so the thing I love the most about it is we're not weighed down by our beliefs and morals. We get to open up to new ideas and discuss it. And there's a lot of ethics in there. And I loved it. At first, it was so confronting. It was like being punched in the face. I didn't know what to think or, or believe. Even a lot of that um, philosophy you talk around and around, the more you talk about it, the more you get to strengthen what you believe in and then add to your beliefs and add to your, you know, what you think is right and what you think is wrong. And also you understand what other people believe. And I, I know it's not for everyone, but I'm really enjoying it so our staff have done the um two of our three of our staff have done the eight-week course with the animal welfare and ethics eight-week course with the university of edinburgh that's a shortened version of the masters and they absolutely love it so it's i think we're lucky because we have the most incredible um workers that feel the same as us in terms of recognizing you know animal sentience and always saying can we do this better are they in pain why are they in pain how could if we stopped it let's stop it now it's not about cost for us it's about doing the right thing yeah so was there already one like i understand that you question now a lot of things that you then do on your farm what was can you give an example of what you already changed because of the studies oh I don't know <laughs> or is it um, like a I slow process then yeah I don't know if I I don't know if we changed anything we already had um we already had pain relief um in and we already had age limits for um husbandry practice such, such as 
uh, you know, castration and tail docking. I think it's strengthened the, the need to use pain relief. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's just building on. It certainly gave me the tools. You know, when you talk to people and they say, oh, what about the economics? We're not seeing the returns in the marketplace. And um, I always struggle with that, um, like how I could answer that. Um, and so I think it's given me a lot more tools to say it's, you know, it's not, you know, just about the economics. So um, I think, I think because... Um, in obviously Europe, you know, has you know incredible animal welfare legislation, although probably you'd, some people would say it's too much and some people would say it's too little. But at least you've got the framework, whereas we don't have that framework. So um, ours is uh, each state has an individual animal, uh, you know, prevention of cruelty for animals. Um, the people that are tasked to police that are either the police who are, are busy or um, an organisation that, that doesn't have a lot of you know, criminal power. So we don't have the framework that you have. And regardless of the people that say your framework is too much or too little, at least you've got it, whereas we don't have that. Um, so I think you know, explaining to people that roll their eyes when you say, you know, animal sentience um, or say, well, what about the economics of it? Like being able to understand where they're coming from, you know, and and accepting their view, but also understanding where I'm coming from. That's, I think one of the things I've learned is that everyone's got, no one's, right or wrong like everyone has something to bring to the table but it's just getting people to the table to understand and obviously um what we do is not for everyone and that's that's totally okay but um it's what we we think is right then I think what you also mentioned in in our conversation so far is that we already talked about um, your native grasslands, but you also mentioned that yes. all what you consider doing in regards to animal welfare also applies to the wildlife on your farm. So tell me a little bit, what kind of wildlife do you have and, and also how do you help these animals? Um, so we have a, uh, so a few years ago, we set up a, um, a kangaroo well, it's a, they're called macropods, which is kangaroos and wallabies. We, so we set up a macropod pre-release. And that came about because two of our workers were moving sheep and they found a, a small joey kangaroo that had been obviously thrown out of the pouch for whatever reason. Sometimes they can fall out um, as the mum's hopping along. Um, and generally the mum won't come back them so um, and she was too small to survive so they've picked her up and we've looked for someone that could help raise her and we came across WISE which is the New South Wales the the state wildlife organization that stands for wildlife information rescue education service and they cover the whole of New South Wales so we Harry River branch which is our local branch of WISE and we met the most incredible passionate hard-working volunteers ever and we were so inspired by the way they looked after this little joey who they raised and then bought out and released but then they were talking about how they don't have anywhere to release away they raise them from you know 800 grams up to you know five six seven kilos so it takes a you know 18 months to two years and then they take them to a national park and release them. But they, there's no one to monitor what happens from then on. So these are kangaroos that have spent their whole life in captivity. Um, so we started thinking, well, we have 
lots of land and we're passionate about animals. So um, we funded and built a, a big pre-release facility, which is a, a big kangaroo pen with a shed, um, kangaroo bags in it, feeding, water, and like it, it looks like it's like a natural um, environment, but it's just a big pen. So they, they start to get used to not living, you know, in captivity, but they've still got the, you know, the benefits of they can jump into their bag. So, um, and then eventually we open the gates and they go in and out, in and out, and then finally they go release. Okay. <laughs> and because um, we monitor all the mobs on, on our place, we can see where they go and we can sell that. Yeah. And then you are also, is that part of also being a declared wild declared native wildlife sanctuary oh that was that was when tom's parents bought kunong back in 72 uh, it was already a declared um native wildlife sanctuary um and then um so it's been um a declared sanctuary since prior to um 72 um but that just means that it's been registered with the national parks and wildlife and but it's a non-binding agreement but it's a it's an agreement that you know obviously there'll be no hunting um or any of those activities on the place so um but that's it's always been like that oh okay yeah And then uh, you are certified humane and it seems that you're the only Australian sheep farm who's certified humane. So tell me about yes. what that means. And uh, yeah. So we did the RWS first, um, the responsible wool standard. So I'll just I'll just talk about the how we got to the certified humane. Mm -hmm. We did the so um, many years ago. Our wool broker was talking about um, oh, there's a you know a standard, a certification. We weren't certified. We 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 had the uh, what's called the ZQ wool certification. They came and asked how we were doing and read through the manual and said that we were ZQ certified. And um, our wool broker mentioned this European standard, the responsible wool standard. And he said, oh, it's very strict about the environment and welfare and, and these other things like it's, you know. And so we thought, oh, well, it sounds like it would suit what we're doing. So we looked into it and we obviously, um, we were audited and, and you know, and, and got the certification for the responsible wool standard. And I think for us, it just fit what we were doing. Um, and, you know, quite a few people say, oh, but, you know, we couldn't do the RWS. And, and, and I said, well, for us, it fit what we were doing. So um, it was good. So... With the RWS, um, once you sell the wool, you need to do it to the next, you know, to the next um, chain in the process. Um, so when it, you know, to you do a transaction certificate to say that it's gone there, and then if they choose um, to manufacture um, with an RWS certified manufacturer um, then they'll keep that certification going but um, so we did that so we've been RWS for many years now and we really enjoy that um, and so we approached the certified humane um, in America last year and said would you consider auditing us for certified humane and they said that they didn't have um, any wool growers in Australia well they didn't have any wool growers outside of the US and um, and so they we um, you know had many discussions with them about it and um, it was something that I wanted to pursue um, for many reasons um, the first is that the 
the people at the Certified Humane Office are the most incredible, inspiring, wonderful people. Um, and that really helped just talking to them, um, made me really excited about their program. But the second thing is it's such a recognisable, um, Certified Humane is such a recognisable logo. So because we see it on pork and eggs, um, which is what they, you know, they do a lot of the Certified Humane. Um, it's such a recognisable logo. And so um, they do, they had a sheep, a sheep um, certified humane for sheep meat. And we talked to them about doing a wool one. And it was a wonder, um, it was an amazing process because they, uh, it was very much how the audit system should, and, and most of them are, be. And that circular feedback, you know, where the growers say, you know, this, you know, we can do this, we can't do this, we have to do this. They say, well, this is what the consumers want, you know, and so it was that circular feedback and it was really something that we enjoyed and they sent out the auditor and, and we got the certified humane. So it's not to the standards of um, the RWS, I mean, the RWS is the pinnacle in terms of how thorough it covers, you know, environment and staff and welfare. But the Certified Humane is that recognisable um, brand, but it's also the opportunity to work with these incredible people from the US who are so passionate about animal welfare and get that circular feedback process of, this is what we can do. Oh, no, we can't do it. This is what you want us to do. That kind of thing. Open up the discussion. Whereas we don't get a lot of opportunity in the RWS to say, well, can we do this? Um, or, you know, what else can we do? Or how can we make this better? So if I put like two labels on clothes, um, people would pick the, the certified humane as the one that they would recognise in the US and in here in Australia. I'm not sure about the UK. I think you have Red Tractor. But yeah, so I think both of them have so much to, you know, to, you know, provide. But that, and that's, I mean, that's why we, you know, support both of them. Okay. So I, I think that's a really important message to understand that you as a wool grower find it um, of value that you can interact with a standard and and kind of create it and develop it together based on like a, it's kind of a 360 degrees feedback then because everybody who's involved in the supply chain is talking to each other and that's how I understood yes mm -hmm. yes yes and that's what I that's what I love about the, I mean, I love the RWS. Um, it's an incredible standard because you have to like really, really, really make sure that you've got everything um, right. But I love the the feedback and working with the, you know, the ladies with the, the, with the people at the Certified Humane. But yes, the communication I like. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of places um, in our industry that sometimes I think we are lacking in that communication outside with people outside of the industry. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes we get uh, stuck in an us and them kind of uh, position where you don't communicate with people outside of um, the industry too much or I don't know I guess some people say oh, we're too busy farming or um, there's no money in um, the audits or things like that but I I think we we got um, I probably shouldn't tell this story on podcast but when we <laughs> when we put up the sort of the certified humane um we put up on a on a social media and um, we got certified humane yay and we were very excited um that we got that we got it mm -hmm. because it's so 
are recognisable and, and, you know, we're quite passionate about all of that. He got some heavy criticism from um, uh, some high profile people involved in the wool industry in the UK. And we were really taken aback. They were like, well, why would you just jump on that? I've never heard of it. It's, you know, um, what point is it? And, um, and so we were openly criticised and we were like a bit taken back from it. So they had just written it off as just another QA that doesn't apply to anyone. But my point is, if we like if we don't embrace these QAs, like we've got like we've got to embrace these QAs. We've got to as grow as an industry, grow as individuals. We've got to embrace something, you know, and for us it's the QAs and the environmental stuff. But if we write them off as they're not relevant, then they're never going to be up to standard and they're never going to be relevant. But if we get in and start working with these QAs and get that feedback loop working, you know, mm -hmm. where we say, well, we can do that, we can't do that. What do you want us to do? What are your consumers saying? Oh, this is what we can do. Then we can make those, you know, they can strengthen those QAs. You know, we can help strengthen them. Mm -hmm. Like it's a win-win situation. Whereas um, I get kind of annoyed when people just write off and say, well, that's not even a standard. You know, it's not as good as the RWS or, mm. you know, like no one said it was as good as anything. It's just a QA. Like I just, sometimes I think we get stuck in the, you know, that under siege mentality um, and we write off looking outside, um, you know, at other ideas, you know, like let's work with another QA. Let's do something out of the box or different. Um, that's just my personal opinion. You don't yeah. have to put that in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's super valuable to, um, I mean, that's even what you're saying, that different people need to communicate their opinions. And that's also what you're experiencing in your studies, where you encounter people from all different kinds of background. And that's what what brings everyone forward by understanding the different values, the different opinions, the different lives and um, yes, because sorry, because there are people in my course that that don't eat meat for you know for reasons that they are incredibly passionate about. Mm. Um, you know, so they're very you know obviously have very strong opinions about the industry that I'm in, and that's fine um, because when you get to know them, right, they're incredibly passionate and intelligent people just like farmers are. So like if we keep being us versus them, like how's it going to end up? Um, I'm not saying that we all, like I don't know the answer, but I'm just saying that these are very well, like very highly intelligent, passionate people as are farmers. Um, and we're all just, well, the, we're trying to do the right thing whatever we believe the right thing is. And that's an, obviously an ethical question. You could talk about that for <laughs> years. But it's, it's probably given me that, the, the view of um, less of the under siege, you know, farmer under siege, um, and more of understanding other people's ideas and thinking, well, well you know what, what, can I do this better? Yeah. You know, and the answer is yes, I can. yes, I can. You know, like, can we do this better? Is there going to be a point where we can't do it any better? No, there will never be that point. We can always do this better. So I think that was the thing that has really driven it home for me is that, like, you can say, oh, economics, like, there's no money in it, or there's no money in providing pain relief, or they don't feel pain, or they're not sentient creatures, or you can make up lots of reasons to stay behind the barricades, so to speak. But if you step out and start listening to the other views, you know, and thinking, you know what, can I do this better? Is it really all about making money? Or is it about you know, making, like giving these sentient creatures, you know, a good life, 
I think, I don't know, I could, I sound like I'm preaching. No, but, Sorry. no, but in the end, you as a wool grower and meat producer, you are making money, no? It's not like you're, you oh, yes. the animal welfare and you're not making money. <laughs> just want yes. to drive that but, home as well. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes, we are. And that's why, that's why I get to sit here and preach. Don't know. Um, because, because we are making money. Um, but we don't do it because it makes us money. It doesn't make us extra money. It mm. doesn't. Um, we do it because it's right. But I guess it's easy to have values when you are not, um, you know, when you when you have money, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Like, so that's a good point. <laughs> you know, it's easy. It's easy to say we should all be um, providing pain relief and um, and listening to people and working with people when when you're in a, a nice position. But yeah, I don't know. I, but but you don't know how much less money you would be making if you're not investing all this time and money into animal welfare so I put, yeah i just, it just <laughs> i haven't thought about it because it's not an it's not, it's your not an option yeah yeah it's yeah. no no it's not and i'm sure if i you know we could um rationalize it by saying that You know, I mean, I'm sure there's, I mean, there's a thousand studies out there that animals that have pain relief, you know, recover better. And, and we see it ourselves, you know, at landmarking time, they mother up quicker, they walk, they're not hunched up, they don't have the, it's, you know, the typical pain behaviors. Mm -hmm. they, mother, they mother up quicker, they, you know, they don't have that loss from those, you know, days of, you know, being in pain. Um, and yeah, I'm, there is a, you know, a million studies out there that talk about, um, things like that, but I just want to make the point we haven't got it all worked out. Like nobody in this industry has it all worked out because we're still castrating. We're still tail docking. We're still breeding animals that have multiple births knowing that a percentage of those will die from dystocia or starvation or mismothering so you know us personally like we're not we're not perfect we've got still got a long way to go mm -hmm. you know the industry has a long way to go so i don't think that anyone can say you know oh we've got you know, we've got this animal welfare perfect um, because we are still doing, we may not be musing, but we're still castrating, we're still tail docking. Mm -hmm. um, we're still breeding lambs, you know, uh, used with, with multiple births, knowing that there's going to be a percentage loss. We do everything we can not to have those losses, but there is, you know, going to be losses. Mm. Um, so yeah, um, we uh, still have a long way to go. Ask, <laughs> make a judgment on the whole industry. Yeah, and uh, la last question about standards or quality assurance schemes. You also um, authentical certified. Um, yes. So how does the process come about? Like, how do you choose which standards to go for? And like. How's that decision process? You mentioned that your broker introduced some of the standards to you. Um, yes. Um, yeah, it was new, well, we were New Zealand wool um, was the first qualification we had. And that was um, because New Zealand, um, they had bought our wool and they introduced us to that standard. Um, and then, you know, obviously our broker said, oh, there's this really good standard, but it's very difficult. And that was the RWS and we got involved in that. Um, and then the Authentico came, the same as the New Zealand wool. So they, um, they were purchasing some of our wool and said they had their own standard, which mirrors the RWS. So, um, so that was how we got that. So, um, The NZ Wool and the Authentico and the RWS are all, you know, 
together in terms of, well, the RWS is the pinnacle, the NZ will and the Authentico, um, you know, piggyback with those. Mm -hmm. The Humane, Certified Humane is, you know, completely different, obviously, because it's a North American standard, so that um, has nothing to do with the RWS. Yeah. Okay. Well, I really, really enjoyed our discussion and um, I really appreciate all the perspectives and the different views that you shared with me today. Um, I also want to encourage everyone to visit your website because you have all these beautiful images of your farm, but also a lot of the people who work with you. Um, And yeah, so maybe tell us what your your website is, is uh, the URL of your website. Oh, the, it's www.kunongstation.com.au. So okay. and there's pictures pictures of our Juni Marino sheep. And I think we've got pictures of Maria, one of our workers. She's our animal welfare manager. Um, and she's modeling a... Kunong Station wool wrap in the billy buttons. So the billy buttons are one of our native wildlife that um, wildflowers that come up every wet year. So they don't come up every year. Mm -hmm. um, they sit in the soil and they come up every year that it's a wet year. So about every four years. Um, they're the most magnificent flowers are protected under the Native Vegetation Act. So I think there's a picture of Maria standing in the billy buttons wearing a <laughs> Kunung Station wool shawl. But yes, it's every four years Kunung Station puts on her party dress um, <laughs> and it's wet enough so that all, all the wildflowers come out and it's just, I mean, every day you, you already, you know, are grateful for living here but when the when the party just comes out and all the wildflowers come out it's um spectacular that's the thing with the native grasslands you look after it and and um they just they really are magnificent <laughs> yes no it's a beautiful website and i encourage everyone to have a look um because it will also kind of back up all what we've talked about today in the podcast But thank you so much, Sophie, for, for your time and talking to me. And I wish you a lot of success going forward with all with what you do. <laughs> thank you so much, Elizabeth. <laughs> Bye. Bye. So I really hope you enjoyed my discussion with Sophie Holt from Kunong Station. I thought Sophie was very, very passionate about how she and her husband and her team are farming sheep on their sheep farm if you i do really encourage you to check out their website because um, it has beautiful imagery and it shows you a lot of details that we talked about in today's episode so head on over to the show notes at elizabethvandelden.com forward slash one two five so 125 and then you can see all the different links um, to get in touch and learn more about Kunong Station. I hope you join me again in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening and bye for now. <laughs>